social mechanics. It was a sad crew steaming out of the harbor that night, disheartened by the inability or callous unwillingness of the local iron workers to accomplish our repairs. Eventually, however, this turn of events brought us all closer together for both the better and for worse. We were approaching the equator now, something I had never done before, sailing just off the continental shelf at the bottom of the slope. Such a sad coast, so much jungle. Who knows what witches have cast unlucky spells on those trees, have spun that mist in which the gulls wheel endlessly, have troubled the free spirits in the shrubbery, what aunts and uncles of what gods whizzed round in those distant snow-capped mountain peaks. Even an infrared photo from the space shot would reveal mysterious patches of murky purple heat in those mountain breaches, perhaps systematizing this piece of anarchist real estate for the development of a valuable mineral slick. We hoped to reach Cape Town by the end of the week, but all feared we would grind to a halt right here, broken down and becalmed on a foreign and hostile patch of water or worse, be taken in a storm with the boilers cold, the screws unspinning. There is no ship so sturdy, so subtly engineered for balance between rigidity and flex, that it cannot be snapped in two amidships or swamped with killer waves as it flounders helpless, unable to face the evil blast, or driven aground on a shoal to capsize in shallow water on sharp rocks and be beaten into fragments by towering surf. We took to wearing our May Wests everywhere, to breakfast, to lunch, to dinner, to bed. Tensions were heightened almost to the breaking point. Some sought relief in alcohol, others in native hemp, some in transcendental alienation, many in sexual promiscuity more of which in a moment. The captain attempted to reassure us in a combination of mime and pigeon, a factor which increased anxiety and drove some of the less stable to the very edge of panic behavior. He would clutch his throat and hold his nose up high as if out of the water and pant and gag and say, No worry too much. No sinky tonight, go Davy Jones locker. And he would laugh his silly high-pitched laugh as the women's knees parted and the men stepped to the bar. I was going to tell you in lurid detail of the sexual events which took place those nights when we all feared the end was near, but have decided to avoid the subject as distracting and as marring a generally higher tone attempted herein. Suffice it to say, sexual excess became, overnight, the rule rather than the exception, and the master of novelty was at the helm. Our captain remained disturbed by something which had transpired while in port at Monrovia, and seemed to emerge rather unwillingly from his more private quarters. He remained aloof from us for several days. I wondered for a time what could be the cause of this strange behavior in an essentially easygoing and imperturbable man such as the captain was. I eventually thought he had suffered some racial slur, though I assure you I have no concrete notion of his experience. Perhaps it was just an unlucky combination of words passed within his earshot. 
When I was finally able to speak with him several days later, he was quite recovered from whatever real or imagined event had affected him. In any case, he was most inarticulate. Perhaps he was more worried than he seemed about our little floating home away from home. Well, I was depressed, to say the least. But thank God in his high heaven for this. I had a good book by G. G. Colton, which I read to while away a few of those tedious nautical hours. He said, When we realize that here is a subject on which every man must be more or less prejudiced, unless he is trying to get through life without any even approximately clear working theory of life in his head, then we can attach far less importance to a man's prejudices, which are more or less inevitable, than to his attempts at disguise, which are unnecessary. Mary Gay Cumberland, you remember, the girlfriend, came to me the very next night, dressed only in mid-thigh-laced silk stockings held up by very dainty colored garters and a little tasteful Hollywood bra under her terry robe. Any old negligee is so much more sensible for a girl than useless gym shorts, provocative or not. I say this, for she would work out in the spa and then stop by chat, always talking some nonsense about wanting company. I'm not girl-crazy like some I've known, but was, of course, sympathetic. As always, the conversation came round to her troubles. She complained quite cheerfully about this and that in her life, her complexion, the selection of magazines in the commissary, the conceitedness of Deborah Springman, how weird the captain was, how her older brothers had tormented her when she was a child, of Levis, her boyfriend, and his inability to bring either the dear child or himself to any sense of bestial satiety. Actually, she seemed to sense the potential for a primitive bliss which she feared was somewhat lacking from her own sensory menu. Not that I in any way presented myself as a specialist. God knows I'm not. Oh, I know the major theoretical works and have some rudimentary clinical experience, but little actual practice in the field. Well, anyway, it seems Levis would get enormously tumescent as red as a large dog, and parade his hardware about their small stateroom, which was only slightly larger than mine. She led me down there by the hand after consuming almost all that was left of my selection of Spanish sherries, giggling like the little silly she could become. They were just down the hall, and I don't approve of this noise making in the corridors when others are trying to sleep, just minding their own business in their own little cubby holes. I know for certain that several such incidents had been reported to the purser by the various wet blankets on board, but I smoothed them right over with my usual mix of suave assurance and tact. It was not for nothing I was known on board as the peacemaker. Well, there lay Levis sprawled on the mussy bed in a drunken stupor, quite larger than life and obviously in pain moaning and groaning and seeming to clutch at himself pathetically in the truncated gestural grammar of the blotto. I'm not going to claim there wasn't a factor of blur in so much of what was done during those days of fear. Mary Gay fell on the bed then and looked up at me so beseechingly with those beautiful blue eyes of hers. I ask myself now if anyone could have refused her request, as whimsical as it was. 
I mean any ordinary person with normal moral equipment. And wouldn't I be guilty of a callous deception if I did not tell you precisely what did transpire? Well, I'm only going to say Levis finally achieved relief of some sort. But my lord, at what a price. Afterwards, he and I had a long talk and worked a lot of the kinks out of a troublesome relationship. He arrived angry and embarrassed and abrupt the next morning at breakfast, and that didn't look good. But I think that now is probably no time to start griping about idiosyncrasies of personality, about who can give as good as they get. It is most certainly not the sort of behavior I would have expected from him, having regarded a few of his antics from the night before. He didn't seem to care what I did to his darling's precious that night. I mean, he wasn't keeping Victoria's secret to himself at all. Rather, he was rubbing my face in it. But Mary Gay proved herself to be the selfless and generous person I have always thought her to be. In her role as hostess, she saw to it that each of us felt himself to be both clever and welcome. And this is no small accomplishment. It's so difficult to find the right topic of conversation in mixed company. One always seems to be groping in the dark, seeking some grounding in the common denominator. In any case, once one has actually witnessed firsthand the intimate rippling force which lies sleeping within a young lady of her character's wellsprings, there is a bond forged which survives any amount of idle slander and generic gossip. Let them talk till they turn blue in the face. I have nothing to hide and could stand naked before my maker even today. On this and all other confidential questions, my lips are sealed forever. She appeared at breakfast the next day quite radiantly happy and seemingly in good health. He, as was mentioned, had an attitude problem, which was causing him to sit apart and say the most ridiculous things to Miss Springman, etc. So I feel I was justified in doing them a good turn. Of course, certain types will say, as they always do, that I'm just jerking off the dogs, but I don't care. We remain quite close for the better part of the journey. Mary Gay and I never did again mention our adventure into social mechanics. But it's not surprising, as we were so totally cut off from normal intercourse, being a ship at sea. There's only one other incident I will mention in passing, and in truth it is much less an incident than a trifling episode in my ongoing tussles with Nanette. Some people just hit it off, no matter how wrong-headed it may be and then want to sweep it under the rug when they get back from the convention or the cruise or whatever. This isn't right. These are the vital signs, and nothing, virtue and reputation or an old man's money, should come before them. We all know the tale of the 20th century, the young wife, the drifting floater in blue jeans perched on the fender of a hayrake, the innocent jug of lemonade, the steaming August afternoon, the generations of boredom, the casual caress of his buttocks. <laughs> this drama need not be sketched to its fulfillment on the spreading acres of violated domesticity and the surging fluids of random travel. As telltale an error as Thursday the 32nd, Suffice it to say, Nanette came to visit me late one night, coy, curious, and in search of what she called a favor. She knocked softly on the door. They all knew I couldn't sleep. 
and through the bolt and there she stood for all the world like a little bird up on tiptoes why nanette whatever do you want i asked incredulous to see her before me in heavy mascara and a sable cow something about face creams this woman was such a case of impeccable vanity and she would do absolutely anything to save herself a wrinkle and i mean anything I showed her what tonics and lotions I had arrayed on my makeup table. It wasn't really all that generous a selection, but then liquid is so heavy for a traveler to carry. She sniffed at this jar and that, aloofly denigrating all the commercial preparations. I think this is carrying snootiness too far. Many brands currently available are more than good enough for her face or arm or torso or flank as well as anybody else's. But by her silence, you could see she always thought nothing good enough for herself. And then she began speaking of a secret formula, druidy mumbo-jumbo about turning hand cream to face cream at the open end of the arching rod of a slippery elm shoot, something that magically appears in the bottom of your wash basin early in the morning. I was dressed in my best silk dressing gown, one that hung in perfect folds right down to the middle of my knee. She wasn't at all good-looking. Quite a hag, really. Uh, not that she didn't have that absent surface attraction which is so common in younger women and so successfully mimicked by desperate women in their middle ages. She hummed a little tune then while she continued her inspection. I stood there a little mortified for her in the hour of the night. Not that I had anything else to do, but I certainly didn't want to be compromised into companionship. Suddenly I saw her staring at me in the mirror, and she said with some aggravation that in her memory we'd come to some understanding over dinner, and that I seemed completely amnesiac. I naturally remembered nothing from our dinner save loose talk and my normal wit. But amnesiac I was not. That isn't what you want, then, she asked with a totally false air of assumption. I didn't at this point wish her to be angry with me. But I found myself frozen in her glare and actually unable to move. It was most disconcerting. Perhaps it was just that I was really quite stripped emotionally and absolutely too vulnerable to risk any bold or clumsy movement. I guess she could have killed me in such a helpless moment, but not even Nanette was that reckless. Though maybe she just didn't have the nerve. It's just a thought I have in retrospect. There wasn't really murder in the air. We were just discussing moisturizers. She told me later that this treatment properly procured and applied and left on the skin for 24 to 36 hours can save a person 10 years of painful disfiguring and unkind aging. She offered me money, but I told her quite simply of my independent wealth and left it at that without even bothering to go into the details of her misconception. I know this may sound dreadful, but it's really not that bad. I didn't mind her being selfish. And there are worse people in this cold, cruel world. And even if she had done something wrong, I would have forgiven her. After all, she wasn't a bore like her dreadful husband. Him? I wouldn't give him the time of day. We chatted a bit about art and politics, and then she left with a some other time then thrown over her shoulder. That was just to cover her retreat all the way back to the larger stateroom she shared with Cayman on a much better deck. 
I certainly had shown her she couldn't push me around and have her way with me, and it was to stand me in good stead for the rest of our acquaintance. This is but a small fraction of the total number of incidents which took place during those torrid times with their associated fear of death by drowning. I half blame the captain for his callous sexuality, which I feel he helped bring on with his dumb show of watery death. But good golly, people go through this sort of thing all the time, and I'm just happy no one was hurt by it all. So often today people are hurt so badly by sex and all of its associated vainglorious pomp and ceremony. And there's love sickness. Then nobody's happy, and more often than not some pinhead goes berserker with a car and a secretary, and that's it. They call in the hostage negotiators and the men with earphones and high-powered rifles. So I long ago decided one in the hand is worth two in the bush.'